You're listening to Biceps After Babies Radio, episode number 37. Hello, and welcome to Biceps After Babies Radio, a podcast for ladies who know that fitness is about so much more than pounds lost or PRs. It's about feeling confident in your skin and empowered in your life. I'm your host, Amber Brzezicki, a registered nurse, personal trainer, wife, and mom of four. Each week, my guests and I will excite and motivate you to take action in your own personal fitness as we talk about nutrition, exercise, mindset, personal development, and executing life with conscious intention. If your goal is to look, feel, and be strong and experience transformation from the inside out, you, my friend, are in the right place. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's jump into today's episode. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. I'm your host, Amber Brzezicki, and in the house, we have my amazing husband, Dr. Taylor Brzezicki. Well, hello. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Uh, I always say that we went to medical school, and then people ask me if I'm a doctor too, and the answer is no. But we... (laughs) Might as well be. We really went to medical school, like our whole family (laughs) went to medical school together. So thanks for being here, honey. Glad to be here. All right. So Dr. Brzezicki is here today to share with us about his specialty. So we're just going to kind of dive in and we're going to tell people first what you do. I have the best job in the world. Yeah. Oh, you want to know more about it? (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about it. (laughs) I am a urogynecologist. Um, That means that I get to help improve people's quality of life. I fix um, people who have bladder problems um, and things like incontinence and prolapse and all those other things that nobody likes to talk about at the dinner table, but really ruin your day. But the funny thing is that like nobody likes to talk about these, but whenever he brings up that he does this, inevitably people are like, just, Oh, I have that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know somebody who has that. Right. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I know somebody who has, that. I don't know. I mean, do you fix it? How do you fix that? Right. <laughs> it's amazing that like, it's something that nobody wants to talk about until when he brings it up, then it's like, everybody wants to talk about it. Cause it's one of these totally. things that like it happens. There's a and, huge stigma around yeah. these conditions for some reason. They just get like, sh- like put underneath the rug and people are supposed to pretend like they don't happen. But pelvic floor disorders, the stuff that I take care of affect about a third of women. So it's a huge number of, of patients or women that struggle with this. And for some reason, they don't talk about it, but it's always there. It's just a big deal. Right. So for those of you listening, like this is probably a lot of you listening are, can relate to this of having incontinence after having babies or having pelvic prolapse. And so we're going to talk about that and kind of talk about some of the treatments that you can do and some of the steps that you can take if that is something that's impacting you. Um, but first, I want to kind of walk people through your experience, like how did you get to where you're at? What did, what did the schooling look like for us? So medical training is long. Um, I think most people know that. Um, it starts with college. And then after you finish college, you go to med school, and that's four years. Um, and after you finish med school, you do residency. And that's where you decide whether you're going to be an OBGYN or a urologist or a family practice doc, whatever. And then if you're really glutton for punishment, you sign up for even more training, and that's called a fellowship. And that's where you subspecialized into some kind of like little niche. So like for me, I'm a urogynecologist, which is a branch of OBGYN. But maybe if you went to a heart doctor and you saw a cardiologist, that would be somebody that niched out of internal medicine, something like that. 
Yeah. And so the way that it looked for us is that we did four years of medical. Again, this we. <laughs> we did four years of medical school. Just like we're running this business together, <laughs> Just honey. like we run this business. Um, we did four years of medical school at Penn State. So we lived in Hershey, Pennsylvania for four years. It does smell like chocolate. It does smell like chocolate. It smells like br- either brownies or cows. Yeah, and it doesn't smell like chocolate, it smells like cows. Yes. <laughs> Which Sometimes way the- it smells like both, and that's really confusing. <laughs> Which way the wind is shifting. So we lived in Hershey, Pennsylvania for four years, and then we went for residency at UC Irvine. And right. so we lived in University Southern of California, Irvine. So we lived in Southern California for four years, and then we moved to North Carolina and lived in Durham, North Carolina for three years for fellowship while he went to UNC. Yep. And now we are back. And just finished in twenty July twenty seventeen. And Finally got a real job. So it's been about about two years. Mm-hmm. He's 37 and finally has a real job. I actually 38 now. Are you 38? Now. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> He's 38 and we finally have a real job. <laughs> Woohoo! So it is a long road. And uh, we got married in December and you took the MCAT in April. So, like, when I say that I've been there for the whole thing, <laughs> like, I mean that I've been there, like, really from day one. It's true. I couldn't have done it without you, honestly. Yeah. So Amber taught me how to study. Like, before I married her, I don't think I knew really how to get good grades and how to study well on tests. So, if it hadn't been for all those fun nights in the library together, I don't think... That That's true. Done. Actually, his mom said that I increased... Your chance of getting into med school by, by about a hundred percent. Yes. So Amber we, was always a lot book smarter than I was. We definitely sure. rubbed off on each other throughout the years. So there's going to be a lot of people asking, and I know this because whenever you bring up what you do, inevitably the next question someone asks is why the heck would you want to do that? Which I usually reply with some kind of a joke like, oh, I don't know. I just got lost one day and showed up there in medical school. <laughs> but uh, on a more serious note, I mean, I got into this field or this this little branch of medicine because um, I think making a difference in people's quality of life is just so critically important. I was thinking about... Um, well, Amber will probably tell you, I thought about a lot of different things along my training (laughs) programs. Um, But uh, in, you know, this kind of last branch after I finished OBGYN residency and you had to pick what you wanted to do for fellowship, I really thought a lot about doing GYN oncology. So this is like ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, cervix cancer, all these kind of cancer surgeries or uh, uh, patients. And uh, I mean, that would have been cool, right? Like you go to dinner parties, hey, what do you do? Oh, I cure cancer. Whoa, that's awesome. Yeah. um, but uh, instead, I get to tell people, yeah, I, I like it when people pee on me because... <laughs> then, then I can I, fix it. Then I can fix it. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, as wonderful as oncologists are, you know, that's just a kind of a... Um, it's, a it's a hard field because a lot of patients end up dying and it just takes a lot of emotional energy out of you and they're sick and they need your constant care and you're leaving soccer games to deal with bowel obstructions and yada, yada. Um, and so I knew I didn't want to do that. And then I was looking for another like surgical subspecialty within OBGYN because I'm very surgically oriented. And urogyne was just a great fit, um, great opportunity to improve people's um, quality of life, which is something that was really important to me. Um, you know, if you take a 40-year-old mom who comes in who's leaking every time she coughs ever since she had her kids and you do a surgery or something to make her not leak anymore, she's going to have 50 years of life and productivity where she doesn't have to deal with that. Um, And I just always felt like that was an incredible thing to be able to give back to an individual, but then also to make such a big difference um, for society. 
um, so that that person can go and contribute without having to worry about these, um, you know, terribly bothersome um, conditions for the rest of their life. Yeah. And if we back up even one step from there, a lot of times people will be like, well, okay, so that brought you into urogynecology, but then what brought you into OBGYN? Like, how did you choose OBGYN as, <laughs> as a guy? Because now yeah. you're in the minority. Yeah, about Very, 90% of incoming OBGYN residents are female today. Yeah, so it's it's definitely a minority that you're a part of. So what brought you into OBGYN? Well, Amber always told me it was the you know thing I was going to enjoy, and I always told I her totally that it was it. the last thing I would ever do. <laughs> when we When we started medical school... He said, he was like, I'm totally open to like what I would do. I think I want to do ophthalmology, but I'm totally open. I just know for a certain that I don't want to do psych, <laughs> psych, psych, psychiatrics or OBGYN. That was like the, the two things he knew he didn't want to do. And as he was going through his rotations third year where you, you rotate through all the different specialties, he would come home and he would tell me what he liked and disliked about each specialty. And as it started adding up of like all the things he liked, I was like, I think you're gonna like OBGYN. No, 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 no. I don't want. I don't want to do that. Who wants to do that all day? And then I remember when he was doing his OBGYN rotation. It was at the end of his third year because that's where you put all the rotations you don't actually want to do. <laughs> the end of the year. <laughs> it's at that's the end right. of the year. And so I was visiting my family because he was doing an away rotation in San Francisco, or I was in San Francisco, and yeah, he I was, was in, doing. I was in Reading. Yeah, and he was doing a way rotation. And so I remember he called me and he said, uh, You're never going to guess. I, he but, said, uh, Would it, I, I, You asked me, he's like, Would it be okay if I did OBGYN? Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, Yeah, I totally called it. I thought that you would love it. <laughs> yeah. So, entering into like women's health and taking care of females is kind of your yeah. calling. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a couple of different stories to tell for how I got into OBGYN. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that probably the most impactful story that I always think about is this uh, this time. So I was, you know, in your clerkship or your rotation or whatever, it's eight weeks long, and you'd spend, you know, different periods of time in different places. And one of them was an ultrasound suite. And uh, the radio, there was a radiologist running this particular ultrasound suite. A lot of ultrasound suites are OBGYN run. But this one was a radiologist. And uh, this woman came in, and she was about 20 or so weeks pregnant, and she came in for just her, you know, is it a boy or a girl kind of anatomy scan. And uh, the baby had died. Um, or was I'm sorry, the baby hadn't, they still had a heartbeat, but there was no fluid, and the kidneys weren't developed, and it was just very clear that the baby was going to die and not survive. Um, and this, you know, was just, of course, like, tragic. And so I'm in the room with the sonographer while she's getting her ultrasound, and then the sonographer doesn't really say anything, but I can kind of tell something's not quite right. And then the radiologist comes in the room and is just like totally flat and callous and just be like, and was just like, yeah, it doesn't look like the baby's going to make it. Sorry. And just like took off. And I was just so appalled that in such a challenging, heart wrenching, horrendous moment in this person's life that this person was able to be so callous and I just thought that was a moment where I could have really made a difference in this person's life. And that was the kind of care I wanted to be able to provide was being able to touch people and, and support them and help them through some of the most difficult and challenging times of their lives. And obstetrics really is that, you know, it's like the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Um, and I just wanted to be able to share that um, experience with people and, and help them through it as much as I could. See, that's why I love him. <laughs> Such a gentle heart. Um, awesome. So 
Okay, so then let's fast forward to where you are now, which is is in the field of urogynecology, um, and you deal a lot with pelvic floor muscles. Mm-hmm. So can you just kind of briefly tell us what is the pelvic floor, like why should we care about it, and, and how is that going to be something that is going to impact us throughout our life? Yeah, the pelvic floor is probably like the most important part of our body because it keeps the urine where it's supposed to be and the bowels where they're supposed to be. Um, I mean, maybe every doc thinks this. I actually remember that like I had this ENT doctor, ear, nose, and throat doctor come in to medical school once and he was like, the purpose of the heart is to pump blood to the ear. (laughs) 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 So, you know, maybe it has a few other focus, you know, values in life, but for him, that was all the heart did. So maybe I'm just a little centric on the things that I think are important. But for me, I think that, you know, when it comes to these uh, just basic activities of daily life and functioning, like using the bathroom, um, uh, intimate health and and things related to your uh, partner and everything else like this is just an incredibly important part of the body and the pelvic floor muscles are responsible for making sure those organs are all doing the right thing at the right time so what what happens when things don't go the way that they're supposed to like what what kind of symptoms do you start to see if you're having having struggles with your pelvic floor yeah it kind of breaks down a little bit by diagnosis depending on which organ you're talking about right so if you're talking about and that's the other thing that's challenging about the pelvis is like so much stuff in such a small space right you got your bladder there there's the uterus and the cervix and the vagina and the bowels and everything else so it kind of depends on which you know, thing you're talking about, but some of the most common conditions that people have would be urine leakage, um, or feeling like you need to go to the bathroom all the time, but not leaking necessarily, sometimes both. Um, and then of course there's a lot of people out there that struggle with pain with intercourse and another large percentage of people that struggle with bowel contents holding, having a hard time holding on to that accidental bowel leakage or fecal incontinence, depending on which one to talk about. And then also pelvic prolapse, which is something you deal with a lot. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then there's prolapse of the organs where things can just kind of fall down. It's kind of like a hernia basically. Um, in layman's terms, people like to say that the bladder drops or the uterus drops. Um, so yeah, those are conditions that are called pelvic organ prolapse. So, you know, as a lot of moms know, when you have kids, things loosen up a little bit down there. And so, you know, you'll have moms who will say, oh yeah, like I sneeze and then I pee myself or Mm -hmm. I, you know, do jumping jacks and I pee myself. So to what extent is that normal? And when does it go into the abnormal where somebody listening to this would be like, oh, maybe, maybe I actually like there's something I need to do about this or I need to like actually look into things that can be done. Uh, I mean, I think that's a really important question and one that depends a little bit on term, like what terms you decide to use. So if you mean common, it's incredibly common. Mm-hmm. Like the majority of women probably that have had a baby will leak at some point when they cough or laugh or sneeze mm-hmm. or they'll just stop going to the trampoline park. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because things are common doesn't necessarily mean that they're normal. And I think that's one of the reasons that these conditions just get pushed away so often is because people just say, oh, it's just because I'm getting older. Or, oh, it's just because I've had kids. Um, that might be the reason that it's happening. It might not be, but that might be the reason. But that doesn't mean that there isn't something we can do to fix it um, or that you should have to live with it. Um, and so, you know, when is like too much you know, too much, or when is enough too much, I guess, is maybe the way to ask that question. It's really a personal choice for the person as an individual. You know, if some people come in and they say, I leak, 
you know, every time I even have a little tiny cough, well, that's probably going to be a lot of problem for that particular patient. And the other woman might come in and say, you know, I only, I leak, but it only really bugs me when I get that bad case of bronchitis. Unfortunately, that only happens once a year. And so it's not worth having a surgery or going to a procedure or doing any physical therapy. And that's totally okay. So I like to tell people that pelvic floor conditions, quality of life conditions in particular, or I should say in general, are a problem when they bother you. And when you it, view it as a problem. Exactly. So if you are at that point that you are like maybe on that tipping point of saying, hey, this is starting to like irritate me, it's starting to become a problem, what is like frontline therapy? Like if somebody went to their just general practice OBGYN and was like, hey, I'm suffering with this, what are kind of the steps that they would move through? Because people don't usually end up at your door initially. Like there's steps that they usually go through and you're kind of the last stop. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean... If we just kind of stick with this idea or this condition of, of stress incontinence, leaking urine with cough, last sneeze. Um, so first-line therapies would be Kegel exercises that most people have heard about. Um, the number of people that can actually Kegel the way they are supposed to is actually very small, <laughs> at least in the ones that come to my office because, you know, I'll watch them do it and I'll be like, oh, let me see if I can help you do it a little differently because that's not quite right. So, um, but learning how to Kegel, finding a way to, um, it's kind of those same muscles that would stop the urine flow if you were sitting on the toilet. So is that a good way to practice? Like how, if someone's sitting at home, they're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm Kegeling right. (laughs) How do you know if you're Kegeling right? I'm sure that if one of my, some of my, um, colleagues listen to this, they'd be like, no, don't tell them to do that. Because we have a lot of people that go the opposite direction where they end up like getting too far on that side. But yes, whatever muscles make the urine stop flowing are also the Kegel muscles. Um, and so that is something you could practice. Um, the other thing people think about is if, if you use the analogy of like an elevator, like the pelvic floor muscles, if you're standing upright, when you Kegel, they should move up. Like they should move, your pelvic floor should go higher up into your body. Or like if you were sucking on a straw and you can imagine that fluid going up the straw, the pelvic floor muscles should move up like that when you Kegel. It has nothing to do with your butt muscles, nothing to do with your leg muscles, nothing to do with your belly muscles. It's all just supposed to be right down there at the pelvic floor. So yeah, Kegeling is important. And Kegeling, just like fitness and exercise in general, works really well as long as you do it. Um, it's not a cure for everybody. It's not enough for everybody. But what effect it's going to have works as well as long as you're doing it. Um, there was actually a guy named Dr. Kegel who used to admit people to the hospital to do Kegel therapy. This was like, I guess, the equivalent of inpatient physical therapy today. But the point was that like he demonstrated or the, his patients demonstrated that it worked because they did a lot of it frequently for an extended period of time. So do you have to have like progressive overload with that as well? I, you know, it's not something that people say in the like textbooks and stuff, but yes, I think so. And what we do teach people, and th- physical therapists often do teach people, is that you should try to Kegel um, and increase the duration of time that you can contract. So this is almost like isometric contraction, right? Um, but you want to squeeze and hold for as long as you can. And you'll find, honestly, that you can increase that duration over time. Like the first time you Kegel, if you're listening right now, like me, I am, you're probably Kegeling. Um, you know, you can hold it for 10, 15 seconds. But within a couple of days or weeks, you'll be able to hold it for almost a minute, maybe even a little longer, depending on the person. So, yeah, can, um, length of time um, that you're contracting and then as, as well as force or strength of contraction um, are two things that uh, you can try to increase 
we don't have weights for Kegels, so you can't really um, increase the, the poundage, so to speak, of the contraction. But you can you can generate more force over time as you train those muscles. Okay. So frontline therapy is Kegels. Mm-hmm. And then what's next? You know, um, little things like using the bathroom um, at appropriate times. Full bladders leak more often than empty bladders. I'll tell you that we never empty our bladder completely. Um, we always empty some percentage of it, 90%, 95% or whatever. So if you go to the bathroom and then you go jump on the trampoline and you still leak, you don't need to worry that that means that you're not emptying your bladder well. The only point I'm trying to make is that you'll probably leak more if you don't go to the bathroom beforehand. Um, so uh, it's not a great option, but it is something else that you can try that doesn't require you to go anywhere or do anything or talk to anybody. Um, other than that, um, that's kind of it for first-line home therapies for stress incontinence. There are plenty of other things for the other conditions, but sticking with stress incontinence, that's kind of more or less what you can do at home. And so then if you go to a doctor, do you, you send a lot of patients to physical therapy first? Is that something that works oh, for a lot actually, of people? I just, sorry, I just thought of another home therapy you could try. Um, I don't have any stock in this company, but Poise, um, the same people that make the pads, make a device called Impressa. Um, and it is similar to a tampon, except that it's not absorbent and it's thicker instead of being longer. And it's um, placed into the vagina to push the bladder kind of shut and um, gives you more control. And that's definitely available over the counter and um, anybody could try it. It comes with like sizer kits and, you know, you fix. Just like at like Walgreens? Yeah, I, uh, Walgreens has it sometimes. It's definitely on Amazon. Okay. Um, it's available. It's widely available, but any given store may or may not have it. But it'll be in the same aisle as the incontinence stuff, like the poise pads and things. Okay. So then physical therapy, talk about So then if you end up at the doctor's office complaining to this, a great um, place to start would be pelvic floor physical therapy. So this is not like your dad's like shoulder physical therapist, you know, kind of stuff. Um, This is, again, somebody that specialized in pelvic floor treatments. Um, and so they're going to teach you how to Kegel effectively, um, but they're also going to do a thorough like physical therapy examination, right? They're going to look at how you use your back and how you use your abdominal muscles and how all these pieces fit together to support your, your pelvic floor as a whole. Um, and then they'll prescribe a, an exercise regimen that'll be, um, of which I'm sure Kegels would be a part of. Awesome. And then if that fails, then that's when they show up on your doorstep. Uh, no. The other thing that they could try um, before they come to see me would be a pessary. Um, so younger women are not usually so excited about this, um, but it's a great therapy. Um, and certainly there's nothing wrong with using it as a younger woman. Um, but a pessary is a ring-shaped device um, that's made of like a non-latex um, rubber. And it's placed inside the vagina and it has a little knob on the end that um, pushes on the bladder neck to keep it um, closed, kind of like the Impressa does. Um, and that is sized specifically for you, so the doctor you need to see a doctor for that. Um, it's a little bit like orthotics for your feet, like you have to like find something that fits the person just right. Um, and that device works great, but it just has to be taken out and cleaned uh, every now and again, um, and it usually gets in the way during intercourse, so it does require some maintenance. Um, but it's another effective, low-risk intervention um, that can be used. I have some patients, they only use it when they go to the gym. They put, it, they put on their sports clothes, they put in their pessary, they go exercise, they have no problems, they come home, they take off their sports clothes, they take out their pessary. Life is good. Awesome. 
And then they see you. And then they see me. <laughs> <laughs> then you're the last stop. Yeah, a lot of OBGYNs in the country and your, some urologists um, do um, incontinence surgeries, um, but that number is probably getting smaller as, as we kind of move into this world of subspecialized medicine. Um, but yeah, then we have a, a handful of different surgical procedures that we do for stress incontinence. And so this, I mean, what we've been mostly talking about is, is incontinence and stress incontinence in particular. On the other side of that is also like pelvic prolapse. And so mm-hmm. you have like the cervix that can fall down. Um, does that work? Does that respond as well to uh, physical therapy and Exercises. such? Yeah. As, or is it sort more? of, it depends. Um, it's always worth a try, I guess is probably the best way to say it. So prolapse comes in stages. We go from zero to four. If somebody has, and zero is normal and four is like completely prolapsed. If somebody has a big prolapse, exercises are not going to bring it back in. But if they have a mild prolapse, um, exercises might be enough to help that person to feel comfortable um, and not be so bothered by the, by the bulge. Awesome. Okay. So then let's make the hop into, so for those of you who don't know, my husband also trains and lifts weights mm. and does powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we'll probably talk a little bit more when we do a, a Q&A together. But um, it's something that we like to do together. And, and lifting heavy weights has been fun for us. Um, so how, how does weightlifting contribute to the strength of the pelvic floor? Or does it? Or, I mean, that's something that a lot of women struggle with too. Like you'll see even on the platform, yeah. um, women lifting like big heavy weights if you go to a powerlifting competition, sometimes like you'll see a woman like deadlift and pee while she deadlifts. Totally. So like, what is that relationship between weightlifting and strength training and the pelvic floor? And you know, yeah. for those of us who lift, how does that, how does it work? I think that's a really important question. And one that, you know, is probably the answer to is probably continually evolving in my mind. But um, I'll tell you the like dogma or longstanding principles of your gynecology is that, pressure on the pelvic floor increases the likelihood of these conditions happening. Um, so we think that these conditions are more common in people that have obesity because it pushes more on the pelvic floor. It's just more weight you're carrying on that space or a chronic cough or anything that's going to make you strain on a regular basis, constipation, things like that. Um, so weightlifting definitely falls on the like increasing your intra-abdominal pressure, you know, place. So when I tell my like colleagues that are all female that, you know, I do this and they're like, I hope you don't tell your patients to do this, (laughs) (laughs) but I take a little bit of, um, pause with that because I think that there are some misunderstandings or I should say some lack of understanding of exactly what's going on when somebody is strength training and the pelvic floor. I think this is a relatively understudied aspect of medicine. And unfortunately, with most things that are dogmatic in our lives, there's probably more depth to the situation than we necessarily recognize at first blush. So in my mind, as you're training the pelvic floor, I will tell you that before I did lift, I kegel really hard. (laughs) I might not be worried about my uterus falling down, but I'm definitely worried about my hemorrhoids popping out. (laughs) And I am 100% confident that my Kegel is much stronger today when my deadlift is getting close to four. Well, I'm a little over 405 on my, um, on my PR. Uh, but then it was when I was, you know, deadlifting at 135 and I had just gotten started, you know? Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I don't know how, much strengthening the pelvic floor um, can impact the 
the pelvic floor um, organs because we just, it's not studied. Mm -hmm. It's a really hard thing to study, you know. And um, I will tell you that in my mind, there is probably some kind of um, tipping point, right? Like, I think that the more we train, the in general, the stronger our body gets, including our pelvic floor. And I will tell you that, in my opinion, the majority of Americans are probably under-muscled, right? And we all need a little more muscle than we, than we probably have right now. And that's true in the pelvic floor as much as it is in the biceps and the back and everywhere else. And so a little bit of strength training goes a really long way um, to building muscle throughout the body. And I think the pelvic floor is probably no exception. Now, where is that tipping point? And does, you know, like in my mind, I'm sure every adult human being should be able to deadlift 135 pounds without mm-hmm. too much craziness, right? But do we really need them to be able to deadlift 400 pounds? No, you know, mm-hmm. there's, but someplace in the middle of that, I imagine that you will get continued benefit as you approach that tipping point. And then maybe your returns are going to continue to drop after you hit that tipping point. And so if it's something that you personally enjoy and you want to do or you are competitive or whatever, then that's why you take those risks to push yourself harder and go further. But for the average person that's just wanting to be generally strong and generally healthy and have a, a healthy pelvic floor, in my mind, a little bit of training will probably go a long way to get you there and probably not put you at a whole lot of risk. And we definitely know that there's risk of not training and not exercising and you know, not being, try, not being strong. So, you know, you have to balance that with the risk that maybe your pelvic floor might have some other issues that we could also try to fix and deal with um, if you did get stronger along the way. Yeah. And if, and if we're being really honest too, and, and a little bit personal, um, you know, something that I haven't really talked about a lot was my experience with, yeah. with urine linking with, with weightlifting. Right. Um, and about, oh, what has it been now? Eight months ago, yeah, I, I, nine, I yeah. switched. I switched out from doing more powerlifting to CrossFit, and you know there was a lot of reasons for that switch. But one of the reasons was was that I did. I started leaking urine yeah. when I would squat. Your squats got to like two forty or something. Yeah, it was like was around right around like two twenty. Yeah, like the two twenty two thirty. I started leaking urine, and and you um, felt it like your your you could feel and like I a could prolapse. feel my like you I could, could feel a bulge, yes. like, like a heaviness. Mm-hmm. So that was the other thing. It was like not not even like just the peeing, but I could feel the prolapse happening during the lift, and obviously that was a little bit of like concern to me. I was like, it's not really worth me like having long-term damage to do this. And so what, so, so what we did in case anybody else is experiencing that, what we did was we took my weight down and, um, I really focused on Kegeling and I focused on building up that Kegel a little bit each time. So we start, we took the weight down, really focused on the heavy Kegel, as I was squatting and then slowly tried to work my way back up to be able to like strengthen that, that, yeah, we've, we've played with your reps and sets, too, to like mm-hmm. try to um, find ways to minimize the fatigue. Yeah. Um, so we took the number of reps down and did more sets. Um, and then uh, what was the other thing that we did? Um, I mean, I guess in my mind, we just kind of thought of it like a form fault. Yes. Right? Like if you were um, squatting a weight and you you know weren't able to keep your knees in, we presumed knees that... Knees out. And, I'm sorry, knees out. Then we presumed that that weight was just too heavy for you, uh-huh. right? Or me or whoever. That was just a coaching tip, you know, yeah. a cue. And so then you, if that was that's the case, if you couldn't keep your knees out, then you would just take the weight down and you would work up exactly. with the knees out, right. working that with the good form. Right. And so that was the idea was that that was what we did. And so we did. We took the weight down and we worked the weight up. It's still 
still came back. It was like, it was this constant kind of like nagging thing that was just kind of annoying. And I didn't really want to push through it. And there was a whole lot of other things happening at the same time of me getting sick of like training by myself. And a lot of these things came together, but that was a big, a big, one of the big reasons that it was like, this is uncomfortable to me. I don't really like this. It's not really worth it to me to like PR 10 pounds. If it's going to mean that I like my pelvic floor falls out. I mean, it's not going to fall out, but like, you know, that was, that was a concern to me. I mean, and you know, if you look at, um, you know, unfortunately, and I really do mean that, unfortunately, like the vast majority of people that lift weights are males and, um, men will tell you that they will get to some point on whatever it is, their bench press or their deadlift or something. And they will tell you, you know, my shoulder hurts every time I get to this weight. And they mm-hmm. do things and they take the weights down and then they play up and they, you know, play all these games with the reps and the sets to try to work around this thing. But in the end, you know, our body has some particular limits, you know, and if you're a competitive powerlifter and that's the most important thing in life for you, you push through those limits with the risk, knowing that that risk of injury is going to increase. And guys do that with their shoulders. Yeah. And that's just because those particular individuals are really, really competitive. But the vast majority of people, it just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Just, and that was for me. It was it, like, it just didn't matter enough to me. No. <laughs> it's just like, why would you risk? It's just that law of diminishing returns. Yes. Right? And like, I felt that very much with powerlifting. It was like, I got strong. Yeah. And could I have gotten a little bit stronger? Sure. But it would have taken a way lot more effort. And the, again, the returns from it right. were like, if I can, what's the difference between me Unless deadlifting... 300 pounds and me deadlifting 350 pounds. Like there's just not, yeah. <laughs> you don't Unless get much you're more trying to like win some championship and that's just like your dream in life. It's just not worth it. At yeah. least that's my opinion. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So how would, how would somebody know if they need your services? Uh, you're like a urogynecologist. As a urogynecologist. Um, well, let's say they're peeing while they're lifting Yeah. or they're peeing while they're jumping on the tramp or they feel like, they feel something down there that like maybe feels like it's kind of abnormal after having a baby. Right. Do they go directly to you? Do they go to an OBGYN? They can. Most people, most of my referrals come from OBGYNs or primary care doctors. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, if somebody thinks they need to see, you know, a specialist, um, they're going to see their primary care doctor and say, hey, which specialist should I go to? Um, and that's where the majority of the referrals come from. But if your insurance will let you, you don't have to do that. You can just call a, a subspecialist office and say you want to be seen. Um, so it's you know kind of up to the person and what their insurance situation is. All right. Any last words before we close out that you want to say? Um, I mean, I'm just grateful to have had a chance to come and share a little bit about um, pelvic floor disorders with uh, you and your audience. I mean... I mentioned this in the beginning, but a third of women in this country suffer from one or more of these conditions. And it's actually very common for people to have more than one. It's the rare patient that comes into my office that only has one of these things. Um, And so it's always a a great opportunity for me to be able to um, try to dispel some of the stigma that surrounds these things. Um, And I think the best way we can do that is being willing to talk about it um, and open those doors of communication um, so that people know um, that they're not the only ones dealing with these problems um, and thus hopefully feel empowered to, to seek treatment for them. Yeah, awesome. Totally, totally agree. And it's one of the reasons that I, I love what my husband does. Um, and he talked about this a little bit when he was deciding which specialty to choose was that this changes people's lives. And, and when he was trying to decide on a specialty, it was 
the saving people's lives was like going into Gainalk. And, yeah. and that was, you know, somebody who saves people's lives. And what he chose to do was not necessarily to save people's lives, but it definitely changes people's lives. And quality of life is, is huge um, for women who, you know, can't, are peeing or having to wear a pad all day long because they're peeing all day long to be able to go from that to being able to not, you know, not have to wear a pad all day is, is a, is a life-changing experience. And so, um, it's something that I love about him that it's like such an important thing to him to be able to support people in the lives that they want to live. And he may not be saving lives, but he definitely is changing <laughs> lives. Well, that's all we can all really do, right? Is to hope that we can help improve somebody else's life. And, I mean, for me, at least, this is just a great um, way for me to try to try to do that on a daily basis. I love it. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. I'm Amber. Now go out and be strong because remember, my friend, you can do anything. Hold up, sister friend. Do you love Biceps After Babies Radio? If so, the best way to say thank you is to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. I know every podcaster wants you to leave a review, but it's because those reviews help the podcast to reach more people. And I do truly want to know what you think. If this particular episode resonated with you, will you also please share it? Either send the link to someone who would find it valuable or take a screenshot and post it to your social media and tell your friends and family why they should listen. Make sure you tag me at biceps.after.babies so I can hear your feedback and give you a little love. And you know, if you aren't already following me on Instagram or Facebook, that's the perfect time to hit that follow button. Thank you for being here and listening to Biceps After Babies Radio.